Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 27 and 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And the background to this is it's in Harmony, Pennsylvania. And Joseph Smith talks about how his wife has not been confirmed and neither has Newell Knight's wife. On the day Emma was baptized, Joseph was arrested. There was a whole challenge. And it's been a couple months. Yeah. And so it's August of 1830, and Joseph Smith is going to go and acquire some wine for the sacrament. And so as he's walking, he's going to have this experience, isn't he, Bryce? Yeah, an angel appears and says, Joseph, don't buy wine from your enemies. Let's not put the church in that position, because guess what, Joseph? It doesn't matter what you use when you perform the sacrament, as long as your heart is right, which is why the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uses water instead of wine during the sacrament. An angel gives in verse 2, it mattereth not what you eat or drink as long as your heart is pure. So answered that question. But while we're talking about the sacrament, can we talk about kind of the symbolism of the sacrament and the feast that it represents? And there's a whole lot going on here from way back in the beginning of time about feasting with the king. Jesus says, verse 5, I am going to feast with you on earth. And he starts pointing our attention to this grand, glorious feast we're going to have with the Savior on earth someday. But that's not new, Mike, right? This isn't the first time anyone's ever believed that Jesus is going to come and we're going to have a feast. So he gives us this great list of key holders and significant people who've restored keys, Peter, James, and John, Zacharias, John the Baptist, Elijah, all of these great people who've restored keys and represent their dispensations. It's kind of a cool list, isn't it, Bryce? Yeah. we got a who's who list of all these people that are going to be here. Now, I'm going to give you my take. I think it's not just the brethren. The brethren are the ones that are named, but I think the sisters are going to be there as well, obviously, and because that's a, how it was. Yeah, and we've got a harp on verse 14 almost as much as we harp on any individual. So he gives us this great list of key holders and significant people who have restored keys. Then he says in verse 14, don't forget that everyone whom my Father hath given me out of the world will be there as well. Yeah. So every there. righteous person. Yeah. So Jesus is inviting us to a feast, whether the literal feast in the millennium or a spiritual feast that's symbolic. I need to get to that feast. And if you think about it, the sacrament is just a small part of what it would be, meaning this is what G- George Q. Cannon said. He said it better than I, than I can. He said, at the last supper at which the Savior was present, the bread and wine were not passed as is the custom now among us. In our church, numerous instances have occurred where the sacrament has been administered in certain places in the same way, meaning bread and water have been partaken of as a meal and not as is usual when the sacrament is passed in our general meetings in the shape of small pieces of bread and a little sip of water. And so what George Cucan is trying to say is the early sacrament was a meal. Now, I see all these old, old temple symbols from way back in the Old Testament. Anciently, if you sit down with somebody and break bread, that's you're having communion. You're having fellowship. 
I want to take you just for a minute and have kind of a cosmic view of what the sacrament is. So I want to just back up and look at it with a wider lens of what is happening in the sacrament. So with that in mind, go to Luke 22, verse 15. He said to them, with this desire, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So in the context of Luke 22, this is a Passover meal. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then you get this Joseph Smith translation in the footnote, until it be fulfilled, which is written in the prophets concerning me. So what's going on there? And verse 17 says, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now, if you go down to verse 24, the apostles think the kingdom of God is coming right now. They're like, oh my gosh, we're going to be in charge. Verse 24, Jesus, which one of us gets to be the viceroy? Who gets to be in charge? And then Jesus corrects him and he's like, guys, you know what? That's not, that's not how it's going to play out. But yet you look in verse 30, he says that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I don't blame them for being confused because on one hand he says, hey, this is going to happen later if you get to the book of Acts. But here he makes it sound like, hey, you guys are going to sit on thrones. Since I brought it up, let's go to the book of Acts just to take a look at this so we can see what I'm talking about. This is important. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So Jesus has been resurrected. The 12 are standing in his presence, and they're like, okay, are we going to take over now? Are we going to initiate the kingdom of God? And they said in verse 6, when they therefore were come together, they asked him, meaning asking Jesus, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his power, but you shall receive power. After the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me in, and notice where there are to be witnesses of, witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and into the uttermost part of the earth. Those four locations are concentric circles of holiness, starting in Jerusalem, expanding to Judea, then into Israel, and then into the nethermost parts of the earth. In essence, verse 8 is an outline of the entire book of Acts. And so from Luke's perspective, who we think wrote this book, like Acts is Luke part two, the kingdom of God has to be spread in the hearts of mankind. And the 12 are the ones that initiate that. So in Luke 22, he says, you guys are going to sit with me and we're going to break bread in my kingdom. And they think it's happening now. And in Acts, he says, nope, you're going to go spread the gospel. And we're still living in that time period where the keys are on the earth and we're anticipating this event. Now, it's going to be future, but this, this feast was also in the past, and it was before the Greeks. It was before the Romans. It goes way back into the roots of the Old Testament, and in my opinion, I think even other cultures are doing some of this stuff because they're doing similar things, and I think they had a portion of light or the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to just geek out just for a little bit and talk about that. I've referenced this before in other podcasts, so I apologize if this is a repeat. Now, in ancient Israel, before the destruction of the temple, the Israelites every year in the fall would inaugurate their king and queen. And the Psalms, there's a whole bunch of them in the Old Testament, many of them were used for liturgical purposes. They were used in the ritual of this 
eight-day celebration inaugurating the king and his wife being enthroned also as representatives of God. And they would make covenants with God in front of all the people that were there. And there are Psalms of Ascent where you can read some of the Psalms where it talks about who shall ascend to the Lord, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And this was gate liturgy where they would come to the gates approaching the walls of Jerusalem and they would sing these songs and they would talk about how Israel is being redeemed and the land would be redeemed and God would make everything new. And this is all over the place in the, in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a couple of them. One of the people that found this and, and was able to kind of extrapolate some of these ideas was a fellow by the name of Sigmund Mowinkel. And he was a Norwegian biblical scholar where he started reading the Psalms and he started looking at the literature of the Old Testament. And he said things like, okay, there's something going on here. There was this big feast on the eighth day and they would call it the Feast of Yahweh. And they would inaugurate this new time period. And Mowinkel says that the holy time is the time where Yahweh allows himself to be found and he makes himself known. He comes to view in powerful actions. He shows himself as he is. In other words, the bread of the presence. This is important to seize the opportunity on his day when the time of benevolence or grace is at hand. With the New Year festival, there begins to be a new year of benevolence. And he calls it the Feast of Yahweh. It was in the autumn. And today we call it the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Ingathering. And on the eighth day, there was a feast. Now, there's a ton of stuff in the show notes that you can go and read about. We can send you on some of these different journeys to kind of understand this. But the big picture is that this was an invitation to all of Israel Probably one of the first hints to this feasting with God is where Adam and Eve are told that they can partake of the fruits of the trees, and they're in God's presence, in essence, that the Garden of Eden is a prototypical temple, because they're in God's presence. The cherubim and flaming sword haven't been set up yet, and they're walking around with God. And then when they're cast out, cherubim and a flaming sword are put in their way, and that's what, at least in some accounts that we read, that is stitched into the veil. So if you think about the temple concept, um, cherubim and flaming sword guard the way of the presence of God. Another symbol of this feast is Genesis 14, when Abraham comes back from fighting the agents of chaos and he saves his relative Lot. And then Abraham meets this guy, and this guy's name is symbolic of Christ. Melech, which is king, and Zedek, which is righteousness. Melchizedek, we call him. And Melchizedek and Abraham break bread. And to me, I see this as a unification of Abraham representing us and Melchizedek representing Christ. And it's prefiguring Jesus and the sacrament. And it's after a battle where we've conquered. We've come out of the battle having won the victory. So it's kind of mortality. I kept the commandments. I was true to my second estate. We come out of the battle and meet the king and break bread with him. That's a big deal that Bryce is going to flesh out when we get to section 27. And we see that the forces of chaos and fighting these things is a really important part. And... Section 27 is is referencing all this, but it's doing it in such a way that you kind of got to dig it out. And section 27 is very Old Testament, believe it or not. 
in Exodus 19, God comes to Moses and says to all the Israelites, we want to make you guys a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I always like to say a kingdom of priests and priestesses, holy sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And in the 24th chapter, so in the 20th chapter, we get the Ten Commandments, and then there's a bunch of stuff in there where he says, hey, I want you guys to come up to the top of the mountain and Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, they go up and they break bread. They eat with God. Now, anciently, if you sit down with somebody and break bread, that's you're having communion. You're having fellowship. And that's kind of where we get the word excommunion. If you are excommunicated, you don't eat with them. And so in that sense, that's where that idea kind of comes from. These words are all connected to this feasting. Now, I want to go to the book of Joel. And you might be sitting here going, what does the book of Joel have to do with DNC 27? The book of Joel has to do with everything. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that the book of Joel is quoted, a lot of it, to Joseph Smith when he's 17. And I'm going to give you a quick sketch of the book of Joel. So the first chapter of Joel is cosmic fertility. We have two forces coming against Israel, the forces of nature and the forces of armies. And the concept in chapter one is everything is wasted. I mean, look in verse 10, the field is wasted. Verse 12, the vine is dried up. Verse eight, lament like the virgin girded with sackcloth. Why? Well, the husband, we have this estrangement. Verse 18, the beasts are groaning. They have no pasture. The trees are burned. Verse 19, that's a quick sketch of the first chapter. In the second chapter, we have war and desolation, verse three, this fire that's coming before these guys that are coming against them and that behind them, a flame burneth. So before them, it's like the garden of Eden behind them is a flame. And we have this, they're set in battle array, verse six, their faces are black. We have solar imagery in verse 10, the sun, moon, and stars. And then we have this question. So uh, the picture I want to paint is this massive cosmic chaos, nature and armies. But then look at the question in chapter 2, verse 11. At the end of verse 11, the Lord is great and terrible, and who can abide it? Meaning the day, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible, and who can abide it? That's the end of verse 11. And the question is answered in the second chapter. If you keep reading, we read about the festival of ingathering, verse 16. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Everyone is invited to this feast. Let the bridegroom come out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Now that translation, it's not the best. Now I, I will say this about that verse. I'm going to give the King James translators a pass on this because I don't think that they've been exposed to the idea of the first temple in Israelite tradition. I don't think they've been exposed to a lot of these ideas that are all over the place in the Psalms. But here's what verse 16 is saying. It's the new year. The king and queen are going to be ritually married as the church is ritually married to Jesus. Now, if you remember when we talked about this with section 25, the husband is going to come out of his chamber, but that word literally means his innermost chamber. It's like a bedchamber, and the bride is coming out of the chuppah. It's the bridal chamber. And in a lot of weddings, we see this where people get married and they have like a canopy over their 
they're, um, when they make the covenant to get married, we see this in traditional Jewish marriages. We also see a lot of beds that have four posts with a canopy over them. And if you read the book of Judith, which is an extra biblical text, um, Judith actually is involved. She's this hero in Judaism, and she, um, she's kind of like a, a biblical David. And she fights this guy named Holofernes. She cuts his head off. He's a wicked guy. And in the cutting his head off, she steals his canopy from over his bed. And it's gold and it's purple and it has jewels in it and beautiful gold stitching. And she takes it and she puts it in the temple as the veil. So here's the image I want to kind of paint here. There's violence. God has prevailed. Good has overcome the forces of chaos. We have the accruements of kingship or the veil. And whether it's Judith or whether it's here in Joel chapter 2, Everything up to verse 16 is the forces of chaos. But now we're gathering the people, and the bride, the kala, is coming out of the chuppah. Now, that's the bride. Now, the word for perfected is kalal. And I don't think that this is by chance, that the word for perfected and the word for bride are so close in the language. In other words, I believe that this is an invitation that God is saying to the church, I'm going to make you my bride, but I'm going to make you perfect. And Jesus plays on the same imagery in Matthew 5.48, where he says, I'm going to take you home. But it's also couched in the language of a marriage. Because when he's coming out of his chamber and she's coming out of the hoopah, this has fertility imagery. This is sacred stuff about the marriage of the husband and the wife. And the king and the queen would be ritually married to signify the marriage of the Israelites to God and the covenant that the land could have, so it could have fertility. Even the beasts are included in this all throughout Joel. So then look what happens in verse 17. The priests and the ministers come, and they weep between the ulam and the altar, between the porch and the altar. The porch is the name for that, the space in the temple where all those tiles were, where the altar of sacrifice was, and the brazen sea, and it's called the ulam. And it's a pun on the word olam. The word olam means like the created order or the world. And so the porch is a symbol for the created order. So what's happening? We have the priests and the ministers, as, as it's translated. They're weeping in the created order and look at their prayer. Spare the people, give not thine heritage to reproach. This is all verse 17, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? And the Lord, verse 18, is going to pity his people. Now, I read verse 17 as there's so many beautiful hymns where we sing about the, the Lord overcoming death, overcoming sin. And there's parts, some of my favorite ones are where the women have their parts and they sing. Because in the Psalms, the women would sing about how Yahweh would come and defeat death and hell and we would be resurrected. And in the sacrament, we are in a very miniature way recreating this whole ceremony. We're doing it collectively. And it's a prayer that verse 24 will happen. If you look in uh, Joel 2.24, it's all about fertility. The floor, that's the threshing floor, that's the Holy of Holies, will be full of wheat. That's a symbol. Wheat on the threshing floor. Whenever you read that, you have to think about the temple. And you have to think about the covenant that we make in the temple when we're married, seed without end. That's what that is. But it's also about the land. So this whole chapter, 
Everything in Joel 2 is this cosmic battle against chaos. The king and queen are ritually, they would kneel at the altar, they would make the covenant, they'd stand up, they'd face the audience, and the priest would say, as the king and queen have covenanted to Yahweh, do you covenant? And they would all say, Enuma. They would all say, yes, we do. And they would be put under covenant and the land would be whole. And in my opinion, we are practicing this when we take the sacrament. Now, that's just a brief sketch of how the early Israelites did it. And it was kind of lost because what happened was after the temple was destroyed, when Nephi leaves, they don't have kings anymore. And the scriptures get edited and changed and they kind of change their views of God. God loses his body. They lose their connection to what it means to be connected with God in the same way that they did in the first temple. And the Book of Mormon is not tainted by these ideas. It, it represents that first Israelite temple understanding. And then, how did the early Christians view this? And I would submit to you that there's good evidence that they looked at this as that Jesus would be inaugurated as king. Part of the reason why I think that is because how many times in the New Testament narratives is Jesus feeding people miraculously? I mean, we have, for sure, we talk about the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, but they're all, all the gospel authors are kind of playing off this idea. And anciently, whether it's Israel or Babylon or, or the Egyptians, the king would feed them. He would provide the meal for the people. And then either before or right after they have this meal, the ancients would circumbobulate the holy city or the holy temple. The Israelites did this where they would march around the city of Jerusalem and they would sing the hymns of Zion in Psalms. But we see this in Egypt and Sumeria as well. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but my kids like parades. And one time I was sitting in the back of a wagon and I was tossing candy to kids. And that's a lot of fun, right? To watch kids chase candy. And I remember tossing it out thinking, why do we even do this? Like, now think about this. We have a, a couple founding days. One of them is July 4th. But in Utah, we have July 24th. And so what do we do on those days, Bryce? We celebrate. Yeah. We have a parade or, you know, we have a feast in some cases. And even if the community doesn't do it, families do it. You get your kids together. You get your grandkids together. We all come together and we feast and we celebrate. So I'm throwing out candy and I'm thinking, is this echoes of this where the king would provide the food and we'd circumbobulate the city? And I don't know, certainly. But if you think about some of these ideas, we also kind of do this with the inauguration of a new U.S. president. He puts his hand on a sacred book. He makes a sign with his hand that he'll be loyal to the book. Now, anciently, they would do it with a sacred text, but then they would swear loyalty to the God, because the idea was that the king represented the God. And today we're secular, and we say, well, we're going to be loyal to the Constitution, or whatever your document is, whatever country you're in. The early Christians are playing on this idea, because then we get into the Greek Orthodox tradition. And so I want to just geek out just for a little bit and talk about how do other Christian churches view the sacrament, and how does this actually help us to appreciate not only our ordinance, but appreciate their perspective on Jesus as well? And in the show notes, we post a picture of the main pattern of a Greek Orthodox church. And if you look at it carefully, it's kind of like a threefold descent, like the temple was. There's a sacred area behind a veil, and then there's a nave. Now, the sacred area commonly is called the sanctuary. And if you go to a Greek Orthodox sacrament service, the priest will stand behind this veil, and they call it the iconostasis, and they'll invoke the blessing of God upon the bread of the presence, and then they will part the veil, 
and bring the bread of the presence to the congregation. And we posted a picture from Holy Trinity Cathedral in Chicago in the show notes, and you can see the paintings, the icons of these old saints. And what I want to just submit to you is this idea that in the Greek Orthodox tradition, when they take the sacrament or what they call the Eucharist, when they take it, the living saints are present with the dead ones. And Jesus is present. Sigmund Mowinkle says this whole feast was about God being made manifest in the presence of the king and queen, but also that he would one day come. And they even called it the bread of the presence. And if you think about what, what is an icon, an icon's a symbol. I mean, if you go to your computer and you open up the internet and you start touching the keys on your computer, you start touching these little icons, it opens up a whole new world. And I see Moroni doing this. I see Moroni opening up Joseph's mind to the concept of what the sacrament is. And in other words, it's this feast and it's about family and it's about communion, but it's not just about the living ones. It's about the, the ones that are on the other side of the veil too. My mother-in-law, every Thanksgiving, she will talk about her mom and her grandmother and will eat these recipes that are really, really old. And in a way, it's kind of invoking their memory. And my mom, who's not with us, I like to think that she's there. This is what I call my Mike Day Midrash, my little commentary on this. I like to think when we take the sacrament, we are kind of united not only with Christ, but with all the saints from all past ages, all these people that are mentioned in section 27. And then I love how Bryce is like, but look at verse 14. And I really like to look at this as also my brotherhood with our other Christian brothers and sisters. And I, I'm calling on the Greek Orthodox tradition because it's just so right there. If you look at that iconostasis and you think about the veil and you think about God being made manifest and parting the veil and coming to us, I see all these old, old temple symbols from way back in the Old Testament. And I see pieces of that in our liturgy. You see, in the Greek Orthodox tradition and in Catholicism, the altar is front and center. But with the Protestant Reformation, the altar got moved to the side and the pulpit became front and center because the Reformation put emphasis on the word and less on ordinances. And so in our church, we go and we see the pulpit front and center, but we see the altar off to the side. But if you've ever been to the temple, they're combined. And that's a beautiful message to think about. And so all of, these, all of these ideas are swirling around in my mind as I read section 27, and I see it as a communal meal. I see it as family. I see it as an invitation from the Savior to answer that question in Joel, who shall be able to stand? And that's an important question. Yep, so let's pick up that question. So Jesus is inviting us to a feast, whether the literal feast in the millennium or a spiritual feast that's symbolic. I need to get to that feast. It's 2021, and Jesus is going to come in some year, and we're going to have that feast. And between today and that day, a whole lot of things are going to happen. And so the question is, who's going to be there? If you look in Revelation, it's the same question. Revelation chapter 6, the last verse of chapter 6 says, who shall be able to stand? So after all those wonderful images about feasting with God and being at that feast, now we have to get to the practical, what do I need to do to get there? How do I get from where I'm at today 
into his presence so that I can feast. And that's the rest of section 27. It's the armor of God. And as we read this, those of you who have been to the temple, I would strongly encourage you to find in the temple answers to the things we put on. So the Lord tells us to put on the armor of righteousness, and then in the temple we're told to put on some things as well. See if you can make the connection here. What is it that I need to put on in order to be with Christ in that feast? Now, before we do that, let's talk about our vulnerabilities. Where are our problems? Now, in the spirit of what we did last time in section 23 and 24, where the Lord pointed out a weakness to Oliver and Joseph, and one of them responded well by strengthening that weakness. In the spirit of Captain Moroni, in the war against Amalekiah, which is a symbol of the war against Satan, if you don't build up your weak places, you're never going to have power over your enemy. So in the spirit of what we've been talking about recently, what are our vulnerabilities? If you look at these beautiful four verses, it talks about you have some vulnerability. So verse 6, well, we got to read verse 15. Lift up your hearts and rejoice and gird up your loins and take upon you my whole armor that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all that you may be able to stand. So here's the answer to the question in Revelation 6 and Joel 2. Here's who's going to be able to stand when the Savior comes. Verse 16, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. So may I suggest vulnerability number one is my loins. I am vulnerable in my loins. And I think there's a whole lot that can be said. One way I'm vulnerable in my loins is obviously the law of chastity. If you look at the world in which we live, a whole lot of people are falling prey to temptations of their loins. The law of chastity It's a law that the Lord calls out in the temple specifically. Of all the things he's commanded us to do, he calls that one out and draws attention to it. And there's got to be a reason for that. You are vulnerable in your loins. The other way you can look at your loins is my posterity. My family is vulnerable. And if you know anything about the attack of the latter days, Satan is coming after the family. So we're vulnerable in our loins, we're vulnerable in our posterity, in our families. The next one is I need a breastplate, which means I'm vulnerable in my heart, my emotions, my feelings, my desires. If the enemy can get me to desire the wrong things, I will not be at the feast. He pulls me away from the feast because he got my heart. The third one is our feet, the path I'm moving, the way I'm, I'm directing my life. I'm vulnerable there. My feet could be easily swayed and moved off target. Number four is an interesting one, verse 17. He says, you need a shield. Now, why do I need a shield? He says, you need a shield to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So where am I vulnerable? Why am I vulnerable to a fiery dart? And the answer is, my breastplate isn't going to have a problem with a fiery dart, but my underclothing is vulnerable to a fiery dart. Now, one thing that Satan's trying to do is light our underclothing on fire, because guess what people do when their underclothing is on fire? They take their own armor off. 
Now that's a brilliant strategy from the enemy. He doesn't have to tear off my breastplate. He doesn't have to pull off my shield. He just has to light my underclothing on fire, or at least a little bit of fire, and I will tear off my armor. There's number four. Number five, my head, my thoughts. So here we are. We've got to protect our loins, our heart, our feet or our direction, our underclothing, and our heads. So what's the antidote? Let's go back through that same list and talk about the antidote. And again, those of you who've been to the temple, think about the armor we put on in the temple over these very parts of our body, head, feet, chest, loins. And what's the antidote? Let's go back to loins. Looking at this from both perspectives as I'm vulnerable in temptations of the flesh. I'm vulnerable to the temptations of of my loins. So what's the antidote? And he says in verse 16, it's truth. The antidote is to know what is true. Now, this is where we've got to pull in the scriptural definition of truth. Yes, truth is good stuff in the scriptures. Truth is doctrines. But the Doctrine and Covenants defines truth as knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they will to come, will be. Now, the Book of Mormon adds a wonderful verse. It's the word really. So that's Jacob chapter 6 and Doctrine and Covenants 93. So if we add the word really, truth is knowledge of things as they really are. The antidote to your loins is to know what will really make you happy and what won't. Let me take you to a fascinating verse, and let's watch Satan go down to hell. If you'll turn in the book of in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 14. You can also find this in 2 Nephi chapter 24. Satan is going to go into hell, and they are going to gather everyone up to greet him. Now, this is not a pleasant meeting. They blame him for being there. They are angry at Satan that they are in hell. And so, word goes out that Satan is on his way. Verse 9, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up all the dead for thee. Not a pleasant gathering, it's a revenge gathering. They are waking each other up. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. This is their moment of revenge. The man they blame for being there is on his way in. And then he walks in. You can almost feel their venom towards him. You can read in verses 10 through 15 how they're going to attack him, what they plan on doing to him when he comes. They can't physically harm him, so they're going to mentally harm him and mock him. You can feel the venom they have for the man they believe is responsible for being in hell. And then this incredible verse, verse 16, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying, what, is that him? What, that guy? This guy? That's Lucifer? 
Now, can you picture my eyes narrowly looking upon him? What? That's Lucifer? You're kidding. I fell for that? It's not Dante's Inferno where he's this massive guy with wings, right? Or a pitchforked fellow. Or the Wizard of Oz lets a big floating fireball of a head. And not that guy. They, he walks in and they say, what? It, it, is that the guy? And then you can almost feel their anger turn. They are no longer angry at him. They are angry at themselves that they fell for something so insignificant. In other words, a truth is being taught them. They are realizing what he really is, what sin really is, and every one of his temptations. The antidote for our loins, the covering that will protect our loins and our children is to help them know what really is. Things as they really are. What will really make you happy and what won't? It's like the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy thought Oz was this massive floating head. And as long as she thought that, they break into the witch's castle to to steal her broom. In reality, what is the Wizard of Oz? What is Lucifer? What is every one of his temptations? He may appear to be a fireball, a floating head, but he is simply an old man behind a curtain. Look how he portrays immorality. Look how Hollywood and the world portray immorality. Look how they portray alcohol. And yet, what is alcohol? It is simply an old man behind a curtain who cannot get you home, who cannot fulfill any of your dreams. Truth is knowledge of things as they really are, not the fake imitation. Money will not make you happy. Lust, satisfaction of lustful pleasures will not bring lasting eternal happiness. And the moment you know that, you know truth, and you are not deceived by an error. And so you have to gird your loins with truth. You have to teach your children, and you have to fight those urges within you by knowing what will and will not really make you happy. So it's right back to the fighting. All of these ideas are rooted in a conflict. And so Paul will say, you know, we wrestle not against powers of flesh and blood in the Old Testament, right? The forces of the enemy, the forces of chaos. Right here in section 27, who's going to stand? There it is. Yeah, those who are not fooled by an imitation, who know what things really are and what they really will be and what they've always really been. Now the next one. Okay, so we've got a vulnerability of our loins. We cover it with truth. I've got a vulnerability in my heart. I've got to protect my heart. I've got to make sure I don't love the wrong things and desire the wrong things. And I know I'm vulnerable emotionally. I'm vulnerable in my heart. And so the Lord says, here's the antidote for your heart, and it is the robe of righteousness. You cover your heart with your righteousness. 
Now, back to the imagery of the bride. I love this image of the bride covering herself with beautiful garments. Um, If you'll turn to Revelation, so Revelation has this same idea of the king coming and we're going to have a feast. And in Revelation chapter 19, the king comes and the feast begins. The announcement is made you know, he's here. So verse seven, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor for the marriage of the lamb is come. And then this beautiful image, his wife hath made herself ready. Now, how does a bride make herself ready for her groom? She puts on, here we go. Here's the armor of God image. Here's the temple image. She puts on fine linen, clean and white. She puts on her wedding dress. You see the connection to a robe of righteousness, a breastplate? She puts on her wedding dress. And then this absolutely stunning realization. What is the wedding dress the bride will put on to go see Jesus for this wedding feast? End of verse 8. The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. You cover your heart. You make sure that it is your husband that you love, that Jesus, my husband, is the one I love by covering my heart with righteousness. And we stitch that dress every day of our life, every single time we keep a covenant, every time we keep a promise we've made to our husband, Jesus, the King, we stitch a little piece of that wedding dress and we cover ourselves with righteousness. So girt your loins with truth. Know the difference between the false and the true and cover yourself with righteousness. I got to throw this in there, Bryce. Verse 9, we're, we're doing the supper again. So when we take the sacrament, we're practicing that. And in case you missed it, if you're at home looking at Revelation 19, look at verse 11. There's the imagery with the battle again. So it's a battle, it's eating, it's putting on the the robes of righteousness, it's all of these things. And I always like to add with verse 8, the righteousness of the saints. I, I always like to say, for me, like it's the righteousness of Christ, and the image I have in my head is my hand. And so at the end of section 27, look what he says, the last verse. Be agreed as touching all things whatsoever you ask of me, and be faithful till I come. The image in the New Testament culture of the word faith was the handshake. In other words, I'm Peter. I am not walking on the water. Like, I'm doing my best, and I grab Jesus' hand, and he takes me home. But I'm, I'm being faithful in the sense of I'm striving, and it's his righteousness. I grab his hand. I hold tight. I'm faithful and I'm hoping and praying that my Savior can take me home. And so I like another layer of that righteousness. And let's throw one more in. If you want another image, go to Matthew chapter 22. The king puts on a marriage feast for his son. It's that same imagery. Same image. This just keeps coming up. But if you don't have a robe of righteousness, let me show you what's going to happen. So when the marriage starts, verse 11, Matthew twenty-two eleven. when the king came to see the guests... He saw there a man who had not on a wedding garment. If you show up to this feast and you don't have a robe of righteousness, this is what the king will say. Verse 12, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? 
and he was speechless. Trying to go to the wedding with Jesus, trying to go to this feast with Christ, and you don't have a righteous robe to put on, you will be speechless. It's like King Benjamin, right? How can you know the master you've never served? Yeah. And then verse 13, the king says to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him to outer darkness. You cannot go to the feast if you haven't covered your heart with a robe of righteousness. If, you ha- if you're not wearing the fine linen of the bride, you will be speechless. And odds are you won't even try to go there because you won't even want to be there. So second image, gird your loins with truth, put on a breastplate or a robe of righteousness. Now, the next one is our feet. How do I make sure I'm headed down the right path? How can I make sure that myself, my children, the people I love are following the path that leads to Christ and this feast? So what do I put on? I put on the preparation of the gospel of peace. The preparation. The gospel asks us to do certain things. And we put on that preparation. Now, I I find a very strong reference here to the Zoramites in the Book of Mormon who were led off the path. And take a look at what they did wrong. Go to Alma chapter 31. Where did the Zoramites go off the path? How do you get your feet off the path? Look at 9 and 10. But they had fallen into great errors. For they would not observe to keep the commandments of God and his statutes. Neither would they observe the performances of the church. Don't you think that's a comparable phrase to the preparation of the gospel of peace? They wouldn't observe the performances of the church. And then it lists a few of them. To continue in prayer and supplication to God that they may not enter into temptation. One of the things we've got to put on our feet. Now, again, think of the temple when you put something on your feet. And one of the things we have to put on our feet so that they go down the right path are the performances of the church, the preparation of the gospel of peace. So can you think of a few things I'm supposed to do every day? Can you name a perform- a daily performance of the church? And the best thing to put on my feet is prayer and scripture study. Can you name a weekly performance of the church? Can you name something I'm supposed to do weekly? Like partake of the sacrament, attend sacrament meeting, maybe attend my other meetings, have a family home evening. Those are the preparations of the gospel of peace. If you want your children to walk down the path, put on their feet a weekly family home evening. What are some of the things we're supposed to do monthly? Do you fast? Do you put on your feet the fast and have that fast guide my feet down the right path? Do I attend the temple when I can? Do I do the monthly things? Do I pay my tithing? And then what are the yearly performances? Do you renew and have an active temple recommend? Do you meet with your bishop and account for your tithes? Do you do the yearly things that you're supposed to do? And I think what the Lord is saying here is your feet are vulnerable and you can be pushed off the path if you do not follow the 
the main performances of the church, so prayer and fasting and tithing and the things that we're supposed to do on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, those are the things that keep my feet on the path. And I can't tell you, I just, I can't tell you how much I can testify that when we stop praying and we stop daily reading and feasting upon the scriptures, when you don't fast or have family home evening, it is so very easy for your feet to step off the path. So put the preparation of the gospel on your feet. Now, number four, we're vulnerable in our underclothing. We're vulnerable in our doubts and our fears, the things that are underneath, the things that we hold in our hearts sometimes. We're, we're vulnerable to peer pressure. We're vulnerable to doubt and fear. And so if this enemy can throw a little dart and hit my doubts and my fears, a lot of people take off their armor. We've all seen someone leave the church because they were hit by a dart of doubt, a dart of disbelief. And that's my underclothing, my blind spots, my hot buttons. If he can hit me in a hot button, he can get me to take my armor off. So what's the defense here? The defense is faith. The defense that we hold up to the doubts and the fears is my faith. We hold on to what we know is true. It's that beautiful moment with the father who has the son possessed of a devil. He brings him to the disciples, and the disciples can't throw him out. And Jesus comes, and the father says, if thou canst do anything, notice the if, please help us. Jesus turns the if right around and says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And then the father does a wonderful thing. I have a whole lot of doubt. I have a whole lot of anxiety underneath. My underclothing are vulnerable, but I know what I've believed. So he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I'm not going to take off all my armor because I have a gospel question that I can't resolve. I'm going to hold on to what I know is true. Now, can I show you someone using the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the adversary? This is a perfect illustration of someone holding up faith when darts are thrown at them. His name was Joseph Smith, young Joseph Smith, 14-year-old Joseph Smith, who started telling people about his vision, and man, did they throw darts of doubt at him and persecution. And listen, watch him hold up this shield of faith. He first quotes Paul, and then he says, I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light, I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I'd seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me and reviling me and speaking all manner of faults against me, I was led to say in my heart, why do you persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision, 
I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it, neither dared I do it. Will you hold on to your faith when the fiery darts come at you? Will you hold on to what you know, the experiences that you have had with God? I'm not going to take my whole armor off because I've been hit with this dart of doubt. I'm going to hold on to the moments my prayers have been answered. I'm going to hold on to everything that I know that is true. I'm going to hold on, and that's my faith. The shield of faith is what quenches the fiery darts. Now, one more. How do I protect my thoughts? How do I protect my mind, my eyes? How do I keep my eyes on the prize? What is the helmet that I put on that protects my mind? And those of you who go to the temple, what do you put on your head? And what does it symbolize? Why do I put something on my head? And so, verse 18, he says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, Paul's going to add a word. If you want to put a footnote in verse 18, Paul adds in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, he adds the word hope of salvation, the helmet is the hope of salvation. It is that hope that comes from the Savior that you're going to be saved, that you have a place in the kingdom. Moroni will say that if you don't have hope, you must needs be in despair. Hope means trusting that I can claim the blessings. Faith says God is going to save. Hope says God is going to save me. And when you can fill your mind with hope of salvation, it will guide your thoughts. It will protect your head. You have to have hope. Your children have to have hope. They have to have hope of salvation. That is the helmet that protects our eyes, that keeps our eyes on the prize. It protects my mind, my thoughts. People must have hope. They must have the hope of salvation as their helmet. So gird your loins with truth, knowledge of things as they really are. Put righteousness over your heart. Put the preparation of the gospel of peace on your feet. Protect your undergarments with your faith, with your shield of faith. And then place on your head the hope of salvation that you because of the Savior, can make it, and that there is a place in his kingdom for you. In fact, it's couched in that idea that we're all a family, we're eating, that's what families That's the do. feast, that's the invitation to the feast, that there's a seat at the table for you. O oh, love effulgent, love divine, what debt of gratitude is mine, that in his offering I have part and hold a place within his heart. That is the hope of salvation, that one of those seats at the table is for me. Let that hope fill your mind, and it will help you keep your thoughts on target. Now, the last thing you're going to find in this list is an offensive weapon. Yes, it can be used for defense, but so is my shield. There's one more weapon, and that is a sword. But we need to understand that the only offensive weapon I have, the only attack I ever make, is with the Spirit. 
He will guide my sword. He is my sword. I use the Holy Ghost in all that I do. When I teach, I simply present truth so that the Holy Ghost can penetrate to the hearts. Those are the weapons. Those are the things we put on. They're very closely related to what we put on in the temple. And if you put on this armor and protect those vulnerabilities that we all have, then you can expect to be at the feast with the Savior. You will be there. Good stuff. Now we're going to shift gears because section 20 is totally different. And the background to this is one of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, Hiram Page, has a seer stone, and he's been receiving revelations. And I remind everyone that Hiram Page is married to a Whitmer. We're back to that Whitmer family who had the idea that we're all equal contributors. They wanted a church where no one was in charge, that anyone could contribute. And since Hiram Page has a seer stone, then Hiram Page should be entitled to get revelation through the seer stone. Yep. There's five things that we're going to talk about briefly that are covered in section 28. The first one is that the Lord is going to say Joseph's in charge. Joseph is the revelator. He's the seer. And the second one, we're going to talk a little bit about where the Lord speaks to Oliver and says, Oliver, you have permission to write, but only by wisdom. We'll look at that in a minute. Oliver is to go on a mission to the Lamanites. And the Lord says the location of Zion has not yet been revealed, but it will soon be given hereafter. To me, that tells me maybe Hiram Page is talking about that. And then finally, I find this very ironic, Bryce, that Oliver is instructed by the Lord to go straighten out Hiram. Yeah. The one who was advocating Hiram Page's legitimacy now has to correct that mistake. There's yeah, a great yeah. truth there and how the Lord operates. We've got Oliver previously telling Joseph how things are to be run, and Joseph had to work really hard to bring him back around and to bring the Whitmers back. And now the Lord, I think, is giving Oliver a taste. Hey, Oliver, you go straighten this out. You go talk to Hiram. Newell Knight, who was there, talks about this. He says that he was at Father Whitmer's, and he says, On my arrival, I found Brother Joseph Smith in great distress on account of Hiram Page, who had managed to get up some dissension of feeling amongst the brethren by giving revelations concerning things like the government of the church and other matters which he claimed to have received through the medium of a stone. Joseph was pretty perplexed and scarcely knew how to meet this challenge. So that night, I occupied the same room that he did. So Newell's right there with Joseph having this talk at night. And he said that we spent the greater part of the night in prayer and supplication. So Joseph goes to the Lord and asks, what am I to do? And his inquiry, where he asks what to do, is section 28. That's the revelation. That's the context where the Lord says, okay, this is what we're going to do. But the Whitmers and Hiram Page... They kind of have this idea that, hey, every like Bryce said, everybody can be in charge, and the Lord is pushing back against that, and he's saying, no, there's going to be order, and Joseph is going to be the seer. And there's a lot of different ways we can apply this in our day. I really like this simple quote by James E. Faust, and it's very short and very direct and to the point, and he says this, it is contrary to the economy of God for any member of the church to receive instruction for those in authority higher than themselves. 
that's pretty plain, isn't it? Yeah. So what can members do? Let's be clear. The Lord says, let me open up the gates and show you all that members can do. Oliver, you and any member of the church, verse 1, can teach by the Comforter concerning revelations and commandments. Verse 3, you can declare faithfully the commandments and the revelations, even, I love verse 3, with power and authority. You can do it with power and authority. You can teach. And there are people all over the church today teaching great truths with power and authority. But here's the difference. Verse 5, all of us that do not hold the keys that President Nelson and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles hold, all of us without those keys, simply write and speak and podcast and write books by wisdom. Verse 5, thou shalt not write by way of commandment, but by wisdom. So that means we can and we should seek wisdom. So there's a lot of truth out there, and members of the church can be revealing great and wonderful things, but they don't have the authority to say, this is an official doctrine of the church. This is a commandment from God. They cannot say, thus saith the Lord to all of us. Just a few months after this, there's a historical story, Bryce, where a woman by the name of Mrs. Hubble professed to be a prophetess, and she got a bunch of revelations, and she knew the Book of Mormon was true, and that she should be a teacher in the Church of Christ, and she appeared to be, what is said, as very sanctimonious, and deceived some who were not able to detect her in her hypocrisy. And so... As with Hiram Page, she wasn't being outrageous. She wasn't being evil. She claimed good things, like that the Book of Mormon's true. But some truth doesn't legitimize errors. And so we got to be wise as members of the church. We'll talk about this later when we get to section 91, where the, the Lord tells Joseph about the Apocrypha, where Joseph's translating the Bible, and he says, what do I do with these books that are apocryphal? And the Lord says, hey, there's a lot of good things in there, and there's some things in there that maybe are the interpolations of men, and be wise and use the Spirit to distinguish. And I think that today, especially with all this information out there, we've got to be wise, don't we, Bryce? Yeah. We've got to know, how am I going to weigh this? Now, we need to receive wisdom as wisdom and not as authoritative commandment. So there's a difference between giving wisdom and authoritatively stating this is a commandment, and those who receive, oh, that's great wisdom. I read that book. There's a great book, yeah. and I really enjoyed it, and the Spirit taught me some wonderful things. But I know that's not a declaration of the way things are, because only those who hold keys can declare for the Lord. There's a really good presentation at a Fair Mormon conference that I want to just mention in this podcast it's by a, a woman by the name of Cassandra Hedelis, and she basically talks about this. Now, she's going to use the term Mormon Gnosticism, and let me just kind of explain what she's talking about. She talks about in our day, there's this tension between me seeking revelation and me receiving wisdom and truth and direction from those called with authority. And Elder Oaks is going to talk about this too, where he talks about the two lines. There's my personal line where I receive revelation, but then there's the priesthood line. And in her presentation, we link it in the show notes and you can go watch her video. She talks about this danger where if we go and we lean, it's this balance, right? 
if we lean too far on the personal line, sometimes what happens is maybe you read a book or maybe you are introduced to a podcast or a teaching idea and they talk about special revelation or special things that happen to them. And then she talks about how sometimes, well, we ask questions like, well, why are the brethren not talking about this? And then it leads people to think, well, maybe the brethren aren't getting revelation. And then pretty soon people find themselves off the path, like Bryce so eloquently talked about, and they're going down strange paths. And so in her presentation, she really tries to show that balance. And I call this for entertainment purposes only. What I mean by that is if you've ever read a book that has some things in it that you're like, eh, I don't know about this. Remember, like Bryce said, we go and we get the canonized doctrine from the president of the church. We have canonized scripture. Personally, I'm a big fan of reading some of these books. I'm not going to mention which ones for entertainment purposes only. But as far as declaring doctrine, what is life like in the spirit world? Right. I'm not going to read a book and say, oh, this person had an after-death experience. They are not the ones authorized to declare life in the spirit world. That's going to come through an authorized channel from keys. Right. And, and so certainly, I, like I said, I like reading these accounts. I find a lot of wisdom in them, but I'm not going to let it necessarily govern my life. Now, as I've studied church history, I like to collect stories. I like to collect stories. For example, Jedediah Morgan Grant had an experience where he saw the spirit world prior to his death. And I think these experiences are wonderful, but I think we have to use wisdom and we have to do things in order. And so I just want to try to introduce both of these ideas. There is a tension when we prove contraries, because think about the other side. If I don't ever go to my personal line, if I don't ever take personal responsibility for my own witness of truth, if I don't go study these things on my own and I just expect my leaders to give it to me, I think that's a danger. The prophet and the apostles will not and cannot make a comment on every single verse of Scripture, every symbol, every possible nugget of truth. They can't, nor would they if they could, because that is our responsibility. And it's okay if we talk to each other and share insights, and I gain this nugget of truth in the Scriptures, and ooh, I really appreciate that nugget of truth. I really appreciate that insight. But to think that I can only go to official First Presidency Quorum of the Twelve commentary for anything is to limit that and to say, no, you've got a personal line, and you do need wisdom and authority, and we can speak to each other and edify each other. If there's anything virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy, what did Joseph say? It's not that we tolerate them. We seek after them. They are part of our path to the celestial kingdom. But there is a difference between authoritative and wisdom. So I get it. I know that if you're one of those people that you're like, hey, Mike, I don't really care about so-and-so's dream. That's totally cool. But I also want to extend some room for those of you out there that are like, no, I like reading this stuff. But at the end of the day, we've got to ask ourselves, okay, are we balanced? And I think that's what Cassandra is really driving at. And, and I really like this slide. In fact, I included it in the show notes where she, she says, on one hand, we got to get personal revelation. But on the other hand, God calls prophets. On the one hand, we're told to seek, ask, and knock. But on the other hand, answers come only in God's way in his time and not ours. And so she really tries to flesh out these contraries, as it were, to help us find balance. Um, in, in Hiram's case, 
Joseph does say, hey, we're going to burn this stuff. There's only one head. But I like to also extend Hiram mercy. I think Hiram can go ahead and talk to the Lord all he wants and ask questions about where Zion is or what's going to happen. But Hiram doesn't speak for the church. And there's examples of this in church history where individuals would have experiences with the Spirit, and then they talk to Brigham or they talk to one of the you know leading members of the church, and they'd say things like, hold it in your heart. And when it's revealed by the proper authority, then you can talk about that. And I think that's wise counsel. There's so many things that the Lord gives us that are just for us, and it just kind of takes wisdom to kind of sort those out. Another thing I really like about section 28 is just a simple little thing in verse 11, where Oliver's told to go talk to Hiram Page, and then I love this part where it says, between him and thee alone. There's something about the Lord introducing this idea, and it's in the New Testament as well. If somebody offends us, just go talk to him. And, and it, it doesn't have to be a big thing. Now, it, this is a big thing because we know about in church history. But in this context, I like to apply that and just say, man, if somebody hurts me, maybe it's good that I talk to that person instead of everybody else. We're so quick to go to social media and shame people. Yeah. But the idea here is, Oliver, you go talk to Hiram. You go, you go take care of this between you and Hiram. And that's such a lost art in our day-to-day where we just, you know, we're, cancel culture says we're going to shame you yeah. instead of have a one-on-one conversation with you. Yeah. So I think Hiram Page and his experience applies to us today. We've just got to be careful. And if you hear voices that say things like, hey, I have the truth and the brethren don't have the truth and they're encouraging you to get off the path, may we take section 28 to heart and just strike that balance between what Elder Oaks calls those two lines, personal and priesthood. So Oliver's going to be called on a mission to the Lamanites, and on their way, they're going to stop at a place called Kirtland, Ohio, which will dramatically change church history. And so sometimes when the Lord calls us to do things that we don't know and don't understand, they end up bringing tremendous blessings into our lives. So watch that is about to happen. The mission to the Lamanites will revolutionize and completely change church history. So with that, we're going to conclude, and we thank you for listening. And by the way, I don't know if you've heard this, but there's this really cool thing called Institute. We would encourage everyone that is of institute age, 18 to 30, to reach out and find an institute. If you live in the Salt Lake Valley, come up to the University of Utah Institute. Come join us. Come take one of our classes. There are so many wonderful instructors up here. You'll find friendship. We welcome you. Even if it's the middle of the semester, we want to welcome you up and invite you to take an institute class. We will talk to you next time when we're in Section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Flies and maggots. Flies and maggots. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.